Welcome to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners, Fintrepid Solutions, and Pivotal Advisors. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. My name is Austin Peterson. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. If this is the first time that you're listening to our podcast, Tycoons of Small Biz is a podcast that's put together by small business owners for small business owners. We started this podcast in May of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, and we thought, what a better time than than then to start a podcast that highlights what small businesses do for our economy and how they really truly do drive the economy. They are the backbone of the American economy. And so since then, we've recorded a podcast every week to share a story and share uh, success stories, failures, anything that you can think of that a small business owner and their firms go through. And so with that being said, today, we definitely have a tycoon of small biz on the program with us today. We've got Georgie Marquez. Georgie is president of Andre and Marquez Architects, Inc. out of Norfolk, Virginia. Georgie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Looking yeah, forward we're to excited. <laughs> Say that one more time. I said, looking forward to it. Yeah, excited to uh, to have you on and and have you tell our you know tell your story. Obviously, Norfolk, Virginia. First time we've had a guest from Norfolk. We've had other Virginia guests, but first time from Norfolk. So excited to have you on the program. And for those who don't know, Norfolk is uh, kind of a hub for military slash governmental operations. So kind of just give us a little bit of background uh, on on Norfolk. But before you do that, I want you to tell us a little bit about you personally. Where did you grow up? What did you study? Do you have a family, kids, married, those sorts of things? Sure, sure. I was born and raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Left Puerto Rico to go to New York to go to architecture school. So I got my bachelor's of architecture, which is a five-year degree in New York City um, at Pratt Institute. Lived in New York for several years after that, worked both in Brooklyn and in Manhattan. Um, met my husband in architecture school. We got married, lived there, and then eventually moved to Virginia. Couldn't handle city life with a little kid. We have uh, one son. And so when he was born, he was around, uh, when he was a toddler, we said, you know, that's not what we wanted to, to experience with him growing up. It was just, it got to be a bit too much. It's very hard to have a, a little kid in, uh, in the city. So we moved to Virginia, moved to uh, Virginia Beach. So this area is called Hampton Roads, and it's composed of certain different small localities. Uh, the main one is Norfolk because it's the largest naval base in the world. And so, yes, as you said before, a lot of military. So pretty much the economy is tied one way or another to the military. There's also, um, it's a very historic area. I live in Portsmouth with my husband. We live in a historic area in uh, Portsmouth, uh, over a hundred year old house that will never be fully renovated because that's what happens with old houses. You always find something new to do. But it's a very important region um, historically for here, both Norfolk and Portsmouth. And then there's Chesapeake, Virginia Beach. We started the office in Virginia Beach. 
at the time we were living there. And we started our firm in the room above the garage in our office. And at the time, it was just my husband and I. And next year, it's going to be 30 years. <laughs> 30 years together as husband and wife or 30 years for the firm? 30 years for the firm. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. It's not been I, like I, that. <laughs> it's crazy how time flies, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah, a couple of things that you mentioned that I thought uh, were obviously interesting. So for those who also don't know, um, there's a pretty large Puerto Rican community in New York. So that probably made it a little bit easier to transition from the tropical atmosphere of Puerto Rico to, you know, very cold and busy uh, New York. Yeah, emphasis on the cold. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's yeah. funny. So my wife and I were just in New York. Let's see, I guess like the 22nd of September through the 26th. Okay. The weekend there, it was my wife's birthday. We went to go see the music man with Hugh Jackman. Okay. And then I'm a baseball fan. You can see in the back, I'm also specifically a Red Sox fan and they were playing the Yankees. Oh. And I had been to the, to the new Yankee stadium. I'd been to the old one, but I hadn't right. been to the, so we went and watched a game there, but I, I tell you all that because it, it, you know, one of the things that you mentioned about raising a, a young family there. So I, I've been to New York, I don't know, maybe seven or eight times in my lifetime. And so, you know, it's, I'm obviously no expert, but one of the things that I remark every time I'm there is how difficult it is with children, right? Whether it's picking up a stroller to get up some stairs or down the stairs into the metro or, you know, all those sorts of things. It, it makes it so difficult to raise yes. small children there. I, that was, it's funny that you mentioned that because that's the thing that I always tell people. Here I had this newborn child in a stroller and I would have to ask strangers to pick up my child in the stroller and bring him down the stairs for me whenever I took the subway. And I look back at that and I go, that's insane. But there was no other way of doing it. So you always try to find somebody that looked relatively safe and decent, you know, that wouldn't drop your child or something. And so, um, yeah, um, so so that it, it's things like that that just make it very hard. Yeah. Especially yeah, I, as a young family, yeah. Yeah, I feel like every time I'm there, I'm picking up a stroller for somebody to get in or out of the subway. It's yeah. just, it, it's just not set up for it. And you know, it's a great city. I, I oh, love being yeah. there, but I just, you know, my wife and I talk about it every time. And I just told her this last time. I said, you know, I I think that the romance of the city kind of sucks you in, but I think if you really lived here, you, you wouldn't like it. And our kids are grown, right? It would just yeah. be us. But I just don't think that she would really enjoy it the way she thinks she does. Being there in short stints, it's it's different. Yeah, yeah. It's it's its own world. Yeah. We lived there for over 10 years. So yeah. My yeah. husband considers himself a New Yorker, even though he was born in Haiti. And okay. so he was a political exile. And uh so but he grew up from about 10 and a half, 11 years old his whole life. So he considers himself a New Yorker, but he was ready to leave also. And even now when we go back to visit family, his family or something, he still goes, yeah, great place to visit. I don't know that I want to move back. Yeah. 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 It's, a, it's an interesting place for sure. So obviously you're 
I'm guessing that your husband grew up speaking Haitian Creole, right? Well, he understands Haitian Creole, but he spoke, he grew up speaking French, actually. Okay. So that was my next question, is because not not all Haitians speak good French, so they spoke French in the home then. Yeah, yeah. His mom made sure that they spoke French, and yeah. Yeah. Well, well, we'll have to connect after the show. I speak fluent French. It's been a long time since I've been there. You know, I, I lived for two years in France. I have an undergraduate degree in, in French. Okay. We were just there over the summer. My wife, my wife, who also speaks French, but just hasn't kept it up as, as much, thought that everything was great. I'm very critical of, you know, how my French sounded and how how difficult it was to maybe form phrases, but I can still get around great. It's just... I have to think about it more than I used to have to. Yeah, my French, I, I speak a little bit of French, so I, I always say I, I can find my way and I don't will not go hungry and I can find the restroom in any <laughs> French-speaking country. But as far as in-depth conversations, now I can have a generic, general, you know, Joel, my husband had some family that did not speak any English, so especially some aunts. And so... I got, there was a time when I could hold the basic conversation in French, but uh, yeah, it's been a while. So I'd have to brush up on it to get fluent. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. I I mean, it's a beautiful language. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's kind of a strange story because I got ready to go to junior high school and my best friend and I wanted to make sure that we had at least one class together Uh and he study German I wanted to study Spanish and we compromised and took French <laughs> so. well, you know, it's, what's funny is that I always tell people that if you speak English and you speak Spanish you know and you're I'm fluent in both I'm fully fully bilingual you can fake French because it's an yeah. Anglo-Saxon language yep. so between the Latin roots and the Saxon the Anglo roots of English you can fake it so I can always sort of like guess at words and vocabulary and uh and make and communicate so i will be understood one way or another <laughs> i'm gonna be perfect dramatic french so yeah but i'll yeah 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 you can make yourself understood for sure and, and same thing with me i mean learning to speak spanish they say that as a native english speaker the hardest thing that you can ever do is learn a second latin-based language hmm. right so, you know, because I speak French, I can understand quite a bit of Spanish. I can at least get the gist of the conversation. But when I try to speak Spanish, it doesn't work because a lot of the words are exactly the same spelling, but different pronunciation. And so that's where you get you get tripped up as somebody who's yeah. a native speaker. Yeah. 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 So let's let's talk about the business side of things. Yeah. I, I we never talked about that in the pre-qualification. So it's interesting that, <laughs> that kind of so interesting to me that you met your husband in architecture school. You guys are both architects. You own this, this firm together, AMA, right? So the first thing that comes to mind for me is architects are really artistic, right? And so you're designing it a certain way. I mean, obviously, there's the structure. It's kind of like this, this cross between design and engineering, right? And so you're kind of doing both. But it, it makes me think... How has that been? Do you guys have the exact same 
design likes or is your house and your office and the designs that you guys do completely disjointed? That that uh, just seemed interesting to me to ask. Design, as far as likes, what we like, we're, we're very similar in our tastes. <clears throat> our strengths are very different. Um, okay. I like to think of architecture as um, it's like the last of the Renaissance professions because you have to know everything from chemistry and structures and physics and math, but you also have to know art and geometry and you have to know balances and space and how to move through space, design, sketching, all of those things. So it's, it's, a, it's a mix of pretty much everything. We have very different strengths. My, hum is, my husband is definitely the, the very good designer. I wouldn't say that he's a, the better designer because we're strong in different areas of design. I think that I'm, I'm, my strength is in the, the programming side of things and in the, some of the, the relationship of spaces. But he is much better on like the sketching and the exterior and the dimensionalities and the the finishing touches of, of of the project. So we work really well when we start a project. I will work with him at the very beginning, the programming, the initial schematic design of it. Then he takes over and I pretty much step back. And then many times I will pick it up again at the construction administration side of things because that's something that I really enjoy and uh, at that point he usually that's his he can do it he's good at it but that's not something he enjoys as much so then I'll take over so um we like to say that we stay out of each other's cat box and <laughs> so that's how we keep it going and we we respect each other's strengths and that's how you have to run the office you have to know anybody who works in your office anybody who works in your firm whatever company it is you have to know what their strengths are and respect their strengths and not step on their strengths for the sake of the firm. You know, you want the best person to do what they're strongest at for the sake of the client also, yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. I, I mean, that's obviously true with any business partner or any, um, you know, employee either way. But I would say that it's even more crucial when you also have a marriage relationship on top of that. Right, yeah. It gets interesting sometimes, but because when we're like, we'll disagree, there might be something that we're like, oh, we disagree on. And everybody sort of like just looks at us, but it, it always works out, you know, because again, we have the best interest of the client and of the firm at heart. And that's really what we're, what we're looking for. So, yeah. but we're comfortable about disagreeing with each other, which is also important when you have a partner. Yeah. Trouble about disagreeing and saying, no, you're, you know, I think you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I have a business partner in, in my business. I mean, you know, and have met Landon and, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because obviously we're not in a marital relationship. We're each married to different people, but we tell people all the time, we tell each other, like the, the reality is we spend more time together than we spend with our spouses. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's important that it, that that relationship is built on trust, that we're able and willing to have tough conversations, to be right. open the way that we feel about certain things. But I just, I feel like it takes an even greater dimension because you also have 
that marital relationship. So, I mean, talk to us a little bit about that. Are there certain guidelines or rules that you guys set in place to separate work from home or what have you guys found that works or maybe hasn't worked over the years? You know, we honestly, we don't talk a lot about work at home, but once in a while we will. What I find is that many times it's usually right at the end of the day, maybe about something comes up about tomorrow, this is happening, this and this is happening, and that something will, because of thinking about the next day, things will come up. But normally we don't really talk too much about about work at home. Um, we have other things that we're involved in outside of work. Now, I'll tell you something that I was thinking about this the other day, and that is that we we usually, unless... I do a lot of the marketing and the public relations and I'm kind of the face of the firm. So I'm, I have a lot of activities throughout the day, lunches and things like that. But usually we, we will go out to lunch together. So we come in at different times because of schedule and we leave at different times because of schedule, but usually we'll go out to lunch at the same time. But many times it's kind of like lunch becomes our disconnect time. So we'll be sitting there and we'll be like going through Instagram and just like totally unplugging. And I'm sure people are looking and going, look at that couple. They're like ignoring each other. And meanwhile, we're like, we're keeping each other company. We're just like unplugging. This is, and so we don't have any pressure of like, we have to engage at this time. You know, we've been in the same office all day. I've seen your face all day. We've talked, we've interacted. When we get home, we, you know, we'll interact again, but lunchtime is so it's funny how appearance wise it might seem like we're ignoring each other but it's just it's a break so we'll just and then if we come up with on a funny instagram reel we'll just look at this (laughs) (laughs) you know i would actually push back on that and say you probably are doing exactly what most couples are doing nowadays most couples are constantly on their phones and they're not interacting as as much as maybe they should should right. right right you guys have the added benefit of you have the ability to interact with each other at yeah. different times yeah and that's what i i think the difference is is that in some ways it's is intentional that we're disconnecting at lunchtime that it's not we're actually not it's not that we're avoiding it's just that we're both disconnecting and so yeah. it's very intentional in that yeah this is we just need a break right now because if we started engaging many times, if we get into like a whole conversation, we go back to the office because it's the middle of the work day. So you end up then revisiting, you know, something that might have happened at the office or whatever. So we find it's actually easier to just like unplug, not even just like I'm sitting with you. We're keeping each other company. You know, when you've been married for a while, just being in the same room is, is company. There's, there's just something special about that. So that's where just going out to lunch together is, is special, but we don't need to be talking all the time when we've been talking all day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, we could talk about this all day long. I mean, my wife doesn't work with me, but uh, you know, the, that marital relationship, we've been married 24 years. So we're, you know, right about the same time period as you. And Oh no, a- we've been married for 42 years, 43 years. Wow. So you were married that long before you started the firm. That's I, I I figured it was pretty close to about the same time. No. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, you've got you've got me by a ways then. 
Now, not as not as much as my wife's parents have us. We're actually leaving tomorrow to go to Southern California because they're celebrating their 70th wedding anniversary. Oh, that is awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, I think we read it one time. I, I want to say it's like one-tenth of one percent of marriages will reach 70 years, right? Just because of age. I mean, age, yeah, longevity. You got married young, which doesn't happen nowadays. So, yeah, it's it's crazy. Well, congratulations to your wife's parents. That's amazing. Yeah, That's awesome. yeah. We're, we're excited to celebrate with them. Yeah. So. All right. So let's talk about architecture. Obviously, I'm not an architecture uh, expert, but you know, we, we already talked about the, the crossover between physics and engineering and design and, you know, all those sorts of things. So you guys kind of specialize in the governmental space for obvious reasons based on where you guys are. So talk to us a little bit about what architecture can do to create safer, healthier spaces. Okay. Yeah. And we do a lot of government work, but we also do a lot of industrial and commercial work. But um, it's interesting that you ask about the safer spaces. Um, I'm actually SEPTED certified, and SEPTED means crime prevention through environmental design. And it's something that has been, it actually has been around for quite a while, but it hasn't gained the importance. It didn't have the importance that it now has as to how do you make a space that is attractive, is still beautiful, it still functions well, but it's also a safer environment for the, the people who use it and the people who visit it also. And so this is where understanding the flow of a building comes in. So for example, if you have an office building and um, there's all these different floors and there's an, a parking lot that's attached to it, there was a time when everybody loved the idea of you parked your car and you got on the elevator and went up to the floor that you know you needed to visit or your office was it was just like this is awesome. Well, security-wise, nowadays you really don't want that anymore. Ideally, you want all of your visitors to go to a central main entrance that is actually somebody has eyes on that entrance that has some security. You can do it through there's mechanical ways of doing it so that you know people can use the card scan at the parking garage or where only certain, you can only take the elevator down to the lobby unless you have a, 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 you know, some type of card reader or something. And so um, that is one, one big aspect of it. Then let's say the elevator doors open and you're now on the floor. So there's, it's a large, I don't know, attorney's office. You can go walk in straight to the office from the elevator lobby. It's all very nicely decorated. The lobby's part of, you know, the elevator lobby's part of the office and whatever. Yeah, but what happens when the receptionist needs to go to the restroom or she's going to go get another cup of coffee and she's not right there? You don't have a door. So anybody can walk in and then they can enter into the whole space. That's not safe. So there's ways of doing it so that you can still maintain a very, very beautiful lobby, but you do need to maybe put some doors, um, a door that will provide, you know, this is the public space and now this is the private space. And so those kinds of thinking, um, you see it also in a school. It's, it's a, 
very important where you're now seeing a lot of schools design where you have always somebody that can see the approach to a school entrance. And you want to do that. You want to have the, the office administrators who are there first thing in the morning always have eyes on the main entry. You know, so that provides security. So if you have other doors, you need to have exit doors in case there's an emergency, there's a fire or whatever. But those doors should only be able to be exited. You shouldn't be able to enter in to the building through those doors. You only you have very specific designated doors for entering into. So those are the kinds of things that architects need to consider when designing a building in today's world. A great example of a means of deterrent, but that's also can be aesthetically nice is how many of you go to Target, you know, you go to Target and I don't know if you have little kids, but you know, the big colorful balls in front of Target. Yeah. Okay. Those are barriers so that people don't drive into the store. Yeah. You know, they're ballers, they're glorified ballers, but the kids think they're awesome. Yeah. You know, and so it's a way of making a play, something playful that you know it it just works yeah i mean I, I it's interesting that you bring that up because it's just a it's an indication of this the sad state of where we are today right i mean you bring up schools specifically school shootings have been just enormous over the last decade specifically right. without taking a political stance on one side or the other what happened at the capitol on january 6th you know all those types of things are are very indicative of where we are as a country and what needs to happen to protect the people who work inside of all buildings, right? Now, here's here's an interesting visual that happened on the 6th of January. And I just find it, this is really funny. So they're, in, they're coming into the Capitol and there is this one picture of them. Actually, I think it's a video. They're coming in but they're all in between the, the, the lanyards that define how you're supposed to enter into the Capitol. Because in spite of what you're trying to do, people are so programmed to follow, you know, the, the, the directions of the line that you're supposed to, to end, go walk through. So they're very orderly, you know, marching down this area. And I'm looking at it going, this is so bizarre, but that's part of, we have been trained to enter and exit buildings and you can use it for your benefit or not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm sure that, you know, your design work over the last decade has, has had a lot more to do with safety than it did the previous 20 years of, of your. Well, practice. yeah. And although having done a lot of the of department of defense work, we've always had to do work with, for example, Spaces so that if there's a blast, you know, blast resistance, we've done a lot of high security spaces where you have to protect the information that's inside from the people who are trying to get to the information that's outside. So we've always been involved in that type of work, but now it's taking a different turn. Now it's no longer Department of Defense. Now it's not just in the military. Now we're bringing some of these same concerns into the public arena. We just, yeah, we, we, expect, we never expected this. Yeah, I think it's really sad, unfortunately, but, you yeah. know, it, it's it's what you've had to do to, I mean, this word gets overused, but 
pivot, right? Is to, to still, still be able to create a nice looking, aesthetically pleasing designed building, right. but that all right. factors in all of those, those safety issues. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because when you said about security, you also talked about well-being. And then the flip side is that then there's also the whole arena of of designing, um, which for a while was called green, sustainable. Um, but it's it, in, in the end, it has to do with how do you create buildings that promote health and well-being as opposed to, I don't know if you remember when we had the sick buildings. Um, or even, um, you know, buildings that because of the old HVAC systems that um, were in the building, then people were getting sick and all sorts of mold and all sorts of, you know, strange issues with it. So that is a big piece of what we're doing also right now. So things like windows, you know, so that you have good lighting into the space. It helps people when you have real, the light that is not just artificial lighting. And even with the artificial lighting, changing the lighting. So now we use more the LED lights as opposed to the older lights that were the yellow lights that sort of made you look and made you feel kind of weird also. Um, It was not a healthy environment. And then going as far as the carpeting that you use, what are the do you remember when there was a time when you bought a new car and you wanted that new car smell or you knew that the building was new because it had the new building smell? Well, now we know that that is actually really bad for you. So yeah. you don't want any of those smells. You want the, you know, the low VOC paint, the paint that when you paint doesn't smell like you've just painted. Yeah. You know, when there was a time when you wanted, it was like, oh, it's the new paint smell. How wonderful. Now we know. Heck no, that's not good for you. you know? <laughs> so yeah. we've learned a lot. And that's where you know, understanding chemistry, understanding the biology of, of the body, um, how a lot of these things interact with the human system, with you know hormones. Hormones can be affected by some of these things in the air, in the water, in the, you know, the systems that you put install in a building. We do some medical work, and so there's clean rooms and, you know, being able to maintain clean environments. And then COVID came, and now everybody's talking about it in your office. So you get people to come in, and the cleaning service that not just cleans the dust, but now also disinfects. And, you know, so it's, but how do you disinfect without using the chemicals that are going to make you sicker? than the virus you're trying to kill. <laughs> yep, yep. Some of greatest, some of the greatest uh, questions that man is asking themselves today are around today. those. Who knew? Yep, very unexpected. It's a world that we did not expect. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, let's take a quick break. We'll hear a, a quick call to action for our listeners, and we'll come back and explore a little bit more about what you guys are doing at AMA. Hey there, Tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit, and if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no obligation, informal valuation of your business. 
We look forward to hearing from you and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now back to today's program. Tycoons, welcome back to today's episode. We're here, <clears throat> excuse me, we're here with Georgie Marquez with AMA or uh, Andre and Marquez Architects out of Norfolk, Virginia. We've talked a lot about uh, health and safety and, you know, the, the way that buildings are being designed today and what makes, you know, kind of architecture different in, in this world, meaning it's the last, in, in your words, the last renaissance, I think is the way that you put it, right? The last ca- renaissance career, is that the way you put it? The profession, yeah. Profession, yeah. Obviously, we we understand on the surface what an architect does, but what really does an architect do and how does an architect make money? I mean, you guys have been running this business for 30 years. It's obviously making money. You're not running a nonprofit. Not that nonprofits don't make money, too, because they do. Right. But, you know, what is it that you guys do day to day to, to make money and have made you successful over the last 30 years? Okay, so, well, let's start with what does an architect really do when you what do you need an architect? So um, a good example would be an industrial project. So a company decides to move to the Norfolk area because we have the port and the port is a big port. So you want to do bring imports or do exports or you're doing some type of, of business that requires being close to the port. Well, you identify where, you know, which location you have. You know, you need to get information on the soil so that you know what kind of building you're going to build. Ideally, you get an architect early on to help you decide for what your needs are, what size of a building do you need. And so we will do the initial, that's the initial phase of programming where we sit down. Who's going to be in that building? Do you need offices? How many people are going to run your business? So we really need to have a good understanding of how the business that is our client that our client runs, how does it run? You know, how how do people communicate inside that business? What are the relationships? Do you have a secretary that sits outside? Do you have an open business, an open office where everybody just comes and goes? Do you need closed offices? Do you need open offices? Those are the kinds of things that we do in programming. Once we have a programming, a program as to what your needs are, then we'll start doing some sketches, sketching. One of the things that we do at Andrew Marquez is we do um, what's called a charrette. And so for the schematic phase, we will bring everybody into one large room with a big table. And um, this is where I was, we were talking earlier about how my husband and I work together. So at that point, he brings out the onion skin paper, which you're probably familiar with. It's a very thin sketching paper and he has all of these colored markers and everything. And we start going down the program and we go, okay, who needs to be next to who? How do you want the relationship inside the building? And then he's sketching as I'm asking questions. And then as people give answers, that usually then leads to another question. And so we get into a whole conversation. And because we have the people who are going to use the building in the room, by the time we're done, which depending on the complexity of the project, it could be done over a series of days, maybe a week, or it could be done in just half a day, again, depending on how complex it is. Um, We will end up with a generic schematic, not a generic, but a very specific schematic sketch of what your needs are. Mm -hmm. And um, we usually try to involve everybody from the CEO to the janitor. 
If you have somebody who's in charge of maintenance, they know how that building is going to operate better than the CEO does. So we need to hear from that person. And so everybody has a say in how the building functions. Once we have the schematic design, we proceed on to design development, where now we start doing more dimensions. Okay, this room needs a closet. This room needs, you know, where would you put the bathrooms? Where do you, you know, those, we get into a lot more detail. Once we have design development and then the main decision maker in a firm, in a company, then says, okay, yeah, this is what we want. At that point, we start trying to get some numbers of the cost. And these are very preliminary numbers because they're just based on, you know, square footage, historic square footage cost for this type of building. Then we start construction documents and we will do construction documents, which on a traditional building way that's done, these documents will then be sent out to different contractors and they will provide different numbers of how much would they charge to build this building. We usually recommend three to four, uh, five contractors. Um, many times we will work, depending on the project, we recommend a short list of contractors that we've worked with in the past and that we know are reliable and we trust. And then we go through the process, this a contractor is selected. We usually try to do that final construction documents phase with the contractor so that um, there's a lot of value engineering that can be done. That's the traditional way. Sometimes we will recommend in design development that we begin the process of selecting the contractor at that point. It's something that is not the common way, but we find that it really helps the client if you bring a contractor early on as part of the design of the final phase of the design and then the construction documents. Then they start doing their thing and we go on site and we make sure that they're doing, they're meeting the design intent. And so that's the whole project. The way we, we charge for that, it has to do with time for everybody that's involved. There's, of course, the time of the principals and how involved we are going to be. Sometimes there are times when it's just one of us that's very involved in the project throughout the project. Sometimes it might be the two of us. And then we have project managers and they have their rates. And then we have the modeling people. We do everything in 3D modeling in Revit. And so everybody has a rate. And we, after 30 years, we have a pretty good sense of how many hours it's going to take and how many hours of the different people involved in the project. And we put a number, a fee based on that. And so that's, how we make money. So do you give them a flat fee or it's, this is what we estimate it's going to be, but then we'll track the hours for you throughout the project and it may be off by 10% or, you know, whatever. We usually do a flat fee, you know, um, many times because of the way the build, if it's a very, uh, a more complicated building, we usually we will have um, a structural engineer and a plumbing, mechanical, electrical engineer that works under us. So we will bring those sub consultants as part of our contract, and their numbers will be included in our fee. What we like to do though is break it down so that they see how much each discipline is going to charge. Um, sometimes civil engineering might be part of that number also. 
So um, the civil engineer, the uh, architecture, structural engineer, which is, you know, they'll do all of the structural design, the steel or the wood, whatever it is, the structure of the building. And then MEP, which is all of the HVAC systems and the plumbing and the electric systems. Usually they work under us. We coordinate all of that. In Revit, we create a model, and then the model that we create is what is used by all the other disciplines to put their documents together. And then we create a set of drawings out of that 3D model. No, I think that I think that's great. I mean, I think, you know, <clears throat> after 30 years, you've you've kind of honed this process and you, you have an idea of, of what it's gonna take. You know, early on, maybe maybe you mispriced a job or two, right? And ended up being way under or way over, right? I usually way, yeah, way under. (laughs) (laughs) That's typically the way it goes. (laughs) Yeah, especially when at at the beginning, yeah. Now, if we're, there there are times in larger projects where you might have a not to exceed a contract with some projects that are not to exceed. That is not as common in architecture, but it does happen and we have done it. It's an important thing to be able to, to hone in on. I mean, Landon and I do the same thing in our practice where we'll quote a fee and it's a flat fee. And if we're wrong, you know, I mean, we did. yeah, we, we built it on our time and what we thought we were going to have to put in. And then our staff's time, just like you, and right. if we're wrong, we, we eat it. Right. And we ended up making a lot less per hour than we had anticipate. Right. right. Yeah. You know, and, and it is a big responsibility because it's not only the hours, but then you have the overhead. And in our case, you have the professional liability. When you pay for a stamp, for an architecture stamp, basically you're, it's, the, it's a liability issue. We are saying that to the best of our abilities, this is a safe building and this, you know, there's Health and welfare, health, safety, and welfare are the big things that are that you pay for in an architect. You can get somebody to do a quick sketch and say, oh, yeah, that looks good, but does it meet code? Will it have the safety requirements? Does it have all these other things? You know, and then depending on what type of a project you're doing, you have to submit to the lo- local authorities who will say, yeah, you're an A, or you need to tweak this, or we don't like this, you need to change that. You know, and that's part of the process that can take a lot of time also. And many times people don't realize how much time it takes to get a project through from beginning to end. In the old adage, right? Nothing goes fast in government. And when government has to approve it, whether it's municipal government or federal government, things are pretty slow. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So let's get into the things that you wish you knew, right? So. You go back 30 years, what do you think, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? I wish I'd understood things like bookkeeping a lot better. In architecture school, we were not taught business, how to run a business, how to manage people. Um, Those are things that we learned the hard way, made lots of mistakes. But so I wish that there had been a business class in school, that I had sat down with some people and learned how to read a PL statement. You know, how do, how do you keep track of where your money is going? You know, how does the amount of money that you're paying to your consultants compare to what you're making? You know, all of those things. 
your overhead? How do you see the total of your overhead and how is that impacting your bottom line? You know, what kinds of things could you cut back on? So that's on the finance. And then on the people management skills, um, it's always better to fire early rather than late. <clears throat> we've hardly ever had to fire. We've, I think we've fired maybe twice in 30 years. It's been incredibly painful. Every single time we should have done it months before. Afterwards, you real, you look back and you go, this should have happened before. It's just, it's very difficult. But, you know, if, if you're able to under, to have that understanding that sometimes for the sake of the firm, you have to prune and you have to prune some dead wood and it looks like you're destroying, you know, the tree, but that's what has to happen. I So those are two big lessons that I wish we had known before. Yeah, I think it's I think it's hard as a business owner, especially when you're running a smaller business, right? Because these are real people that you know, you may know their families, you know what this means to them from a financial standpoint. Right. But for the good of the firm, like you said, it, right. it's you have you hire slow, fire fast, right? Right. Yes. And it's it's a really hard thing to get through. Um, we've we've lived it in our practice. We've talked about this on multiple episodes before. We're right now hiring somebody new for our practice because we lost somebody that was inspired by the by the podcast to go and start her own business, <laughs> um, which you know has been awesome for her. And she's just getting you know started. And we met with her and talked to her a little bit about some things yesterday. And the other thing that you mentioned was. Is, is what we told her yesterday. You, you have to know your numbers, right? And, and the reality is most businesses get started by people who, are, who have certain skill sets, right? So you're an architect, you're a licensed architect, interior designer, electrical contractor, stucco contractor, you know, all these people yeah. who are like, man, I'm really good at this. I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna go ahead and start my own business doing that, but they have no business training or finance training at all, right? You know, specifically architecture or interior design. You know, a lot of a lot of these, a lot of these areas that people study, that in in a lot of instances end up being self-employed in that area. It should be a required coursework. For it that. should, yeah, it should. You know, it's interesting. Um, I have a nephew that graduated from um, SCAD Savannah art school of of uh, design and one of the things he's in photography but one of the things that we visited the school and we were walking around that was made clear is that the woman who started SCAD that was her big thing it's an art school but her thing is like it was very important for her that every student that went through her school understood business and understood how to make money out of their art whatever it was that was studying and I just thought this is so brilliant. Yeah. Because yeah, it's super you important. have to, you have to know some of it. Um, at yeah. least the basics, you won't get the depth until you actually start doing it. But the foundation is, it's not that hard to teach. Um, and that's a good time to do it. Yep. Yep. And it's, it's a big reason that, you know, businesses end up failing. We have a really high failure rate of businesses in our country and that's, and that's a big reason why. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. So now, now we're kind of going to catch up to where you are now, right? So you've been running this firm for 30 years. You've been married for 42 years. Not going to ask you how old you are, but you get to a point in your life where what do you want to do, right? So now, now that you've done that, you've built a successful business, you've got a great marriage relationship. Now, what do you want to do with your life? It's interesting. That's, that's one of the things that we're, we're looking at. What do we want to do now? Um, I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday and it was funny. Okay. So I won't say how old I am, but I'm, I'm at the end of, of my career. I mean, I'm older. and um, one of the things I told him, it's funny, I've become bolder in my older age <laughs> so that I'm not as afraid of speaking my mind. And so I find that what's interesting me now is more the mentoring, the the speaking, and, and maybe leaving a legacy in things that I believe in. I'm very involved in different organizations. Being able to speak as a woman in a career that is not typically a woman's career, a minority woman in, in, this, in this world, and making sure that my voice is heard. There might have been times when I was younger that I might have been afraid of speaking out or letting my voice be heard. And, and now I'm like, there's nothing, I don't have anything to lose at this point. You know, my career is pretty much settled. Nobody's going to fire me. They can ask me not to come back to that meeting. That's okay. I already have a gazillion meetings in my life. <laughs> one less won't be a big deal. But I um, I find that I, I like speaking out on things that I believe in. Some of it is in some ways related to the issues of safety, like we were talking about. I really enjoy doing presentations on that, making people aware of being aware of their surroundings and their spaces and things that they can do to to make sure that their spaces are safer. For example, if you if you have a business that is mostly women, know that domestic violence is a big issue and that there's things you should do in your business that you can do with very simple architectural elements that will protect your staff. So there's little things like that. And then talking about diversity and uh giving chance to to people who might not look like you. But diversity diversity also means that you are, if you are um, a Hispanic business, don't hire only Hispanics. That's not diverse. Diversity means you bring people that don't look like you to work with you and for you because you want to hear all the different voices, the importance of um, of respecting the, the dignity of of people you deal with all the time. So yeah, it's 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 interesting. I, I'm I'm not sure. I think I'd I'd like to become I don't want to get involved in politics in the sense of running for office or anything like that. That doesn't interest me, but I love public policy and being on boards, being on panels. I've been on several boards with the city of Norfolk. Now I'm on a panel. I've been. I was on a panel on a with the Commonwealth of Virginia on coastal resilience, and I'm now on another panel that I was just appointed by the current governor on um, secure and resilient Virginia. So you know, those that is something that I'm I'm kind of interested and passionate about. So what's going to happen to the business? Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. 
Well, there are plans that could be put into place. So yeah, oh, definitely yes. Yes. make sure that's, that that's happening. But I, I think that's great. I mean, I think the, the reality is we all have, you know, certain things that we're passionate about outside of our business. And there are certain things that we can do all along, right? We don't have to wait until the end of our career to do certain things, right? Right, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. but some of them you, you do, right? I mean, some of them you just, they just have to wait. And that's, that's, you know, your second phase or third phase of life, right? And it, it's an opportunity to go out and do something that is not tied to making money doing it, right? But you have an opportunity to give back and do something that's important to you. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. I'll tell you as somebody who's pretty unimpressed with our political status right here in the country and political state where we are in this country, we need people who are passionate about the things that you're passionate about who want to do it for the right things. Right. But I, I also understand not wanting to run for political office because of the way that it is right now. And that's, that's the sad part. And honestly, I'm not sure that the elected politician is as powerful as we think they are. In a lot of in a and lot of that's cases, that's a whole discu- That's a whole other discussion. But I think there's a lot of ha- things that happen behind closed doors and in the background. You know that that have a lot of you can you can influence a lot of things with being in the background from the background. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely correct. And like you said, whether that's the board, the panels, you know, I think in politics, a lot of it is lobbying and corporate greed and different things like that, that are going on where politicians are kind of stuck in or, you know, in the middle of certain things that they shouldn't be in and are benefiting from certain things that they shouldn't be benefiting. But, um, you know, which is unfortunate, but that's, you know, that that could be a whole other podcast. That's a I mean, whole other podcast. Yes. Maybe Georgie and Austin have to start their own political podcast going forward to try to make some change <laughs> in this country. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Georgie, I I really appreciated the conversation. I you guys are obviously running a great shop. I'm impressed by everything you've done, and and more so by the person that you are. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah, and I, I really appreciate you having, you know, taking the time and being willing to come on our podcast. So I'm going to toss it back over to you, let people know who are listening, how to get a hold of you, where they should track you down and whatever else you'd like to share. Sure. Well, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me under my name. And um, also you can reach us. Our um, webpage is www.amarchi. P as in Thomas X as in X-ray.com. And that's AM Architects. When you say AM, then it makes sense. A-M-A-R-C-H-I-T-X.com. And the at AM Architects is also my Twitter and my Instagram. And uh, yeah, I try to post fun things that I do throughout the day or things that we're doing in the office. You just stay in touch so we can be reached again either through the website or through LinkedIn or Follow on Twitter or Instagram. I'm not doing as much on Twitter. Twitter is getting on my nerves. I yeah. Think I, yeah, I like Instagram. Yep, I hear you. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll definitely give you a follow and, and we'll stay in touch. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Austin. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you.
listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Arizona time for an introduction to another great tycoon. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.